If I were to ask you all for one word, just to think of one word that will serve as the difference or the dividing line between those who are going to spend eternity in heaven and those who are going to spend eternity in hell, I am sure that there would be some very quick and quite widely given answers. One word that means the difference that is the dividing line between those who will be in hell and those who will be in heaven for eternity. Some of the more popular answers that would come to mind right off the bat would probably be things like Jesus, faith, love, forgiveness, obedience, repentance, baptism. Probably those would be some of the more frequent answers to that question if I asked for just one word that was the dividing line. But tonight I want us to look at another word that probably nobody thought of. Another word that will serve as the dividing line between those who go to heaven and those who do not. Especially when this word is used in conjunction with any of those other ones. However, even though it's an extremely important word, even though it's as much a dividing line as some of those other words, it's one that quite often is overlooked when people study the Bible. It's quite often disregarded or relegated to a place of obscurity. But if it is neglected or if it is omitted, if it is even minimally marginalized, then it will mean the same difference on Judgment Day between which destination one heads for all eternity. And here's the thing about this word. You know, there's some Bible words that are a little bit hard to get our head around. Propitiation, right? Okay? This word isn't a hard word. This word is not at all hard to understand. In fact, we understand the meaning of this word absolutely completely without ever even stopping to think about it. It's second nature in our secular everyday lives. We understand what this word means. It's a simple little four-letter word. Very simple. The word is must. M-U-S-T. Must. And it's not at all difficult to understand the word must in and of itself. Okay? The word must means this is a requirement. The word must means one cannot receive the desired outcome without first complying with the demanded condition. It's that simple. What the word must means when used in conjunction with other terms, the word must means there's no denying it, there's no way around it, there's no way forward without it, whatever the it is that we're talking about. For example, think about all the times we use this in our everyday lives, the word must, okay? We see something on, on the internet or something, it says, must be 18. We understand if you're 17, it ain't happening, right? Must be 18 means this is a requirement. You're not going forward without it. You've got to be 18. It's that simple. If you follow sports and your team is down 0 and 2, in a best-of-five playoff series, you understand the term must win. If they don't win the next game, they're not moving forward. It's over. It's done. Got to win that next game. 
For those of you that have already gone and picked up your real ID, the, the federal ID that's going to be required by this time next year to go into federal buildings and to fly, if you've gone for that, there are certain documents that are required in order to get that real ID. If you don't have those documents, you don't get the real ID. It's not going to happen. Those are required. There's no evading it, avoiding it, or getting around it. You must have those documents. <laughs> Speaking of the word must, Wednesday afternoon, I come over fairly early in the afternoon getting ready for Wednesday night Bible class so that we could have Wednesday night Bible class live streamed. <clears throat> and I get over here and, and Facebook Live has changed some of their stuff and it wasn't the same as it was when I was live streaming off my computer. And so I come over and I keep trying, I keep trying. I call Kirk and I keep trying. I don't want him to have to go up to the building because it's snowing out. I keep trying. I can't get this thing to work. I can't even get, it just ain't going to work. So finally Kirk makes a trip up. And he sits there and he's fooling with it. What happened was, under the new Facebook settings, is that apparently if you do it with a laptop, not a smartphone, but if you do it with a laptop, it is a requirement that you must type in a title and a description of your class. Until you do that, the little button down here that says go live, don't light up. If the little button that says go live, don't light up, you ain't going live. It is a requirement, just like when you fill out a lot of things on the internet, you have a required field. Without it, you don't go. So we understand what the word must means in our everyday life. Believe me, I'm getting to a real strong spiritual point here eventually. The word must means this is not an, this is not an option. It's an obligation. That's what it means. The word must means this is not a request. <laughs> this is a requirement. This is not a suggestion. This is essential. And until you do it, you're not getting any further. And Jesus himself used that word must exactly that same way. For example, and I'm not going to turn here. I'm just going to read you these two verses. In Matthew 16 and verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Similarly, Mark 8 and verse 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. Why must he do that? He must do that because that's been God's plan from the beginning. If he does not do that, everything falls apart. All of the prophecy, all of our hope, everything falls totally apart. God doesn't know what he's talking about if Jesus doesn't do it that It must be that way. There was no avoiding it, evading it, getting around it, compromising it. That was a requirement. That's why Jesus said, I must do this. But here's something else I want for us to understand. And this is crucial, especially as we talk with people about being saved, as we talk to people about going to heaven. What I also want us to notice from those two texts and Jesus' life relative to them is this. Jesus knew that he must carry out the Father's plan. It was not an option. It was an obligation. It was a requirement. It was a must. It had to be that way. But I want you to also notice what Satan did, because Satan hasn't changed his tactics. 
Remember, Satan will do everything in his power, just as he did with Jesus, to try to convince Jesus, in this case, not to do what God said he must. Don't ever forget that. When God says you must do this in order to get this, Satan is going to do everything in his power to make sure you absolutely do not do what God said you must do in order to inherit the blessing. He does the same thing with us. He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give you all the kings of the world if you bow down and worship me. If you just skip doing it God's way, if you don't go through the cross and you just bow down right here, I can save you all of that hassle. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, tell us about that. So the thing that we learn from this that we must never forget if we want to go to heaven is that Satan is still doing the same thing. Satan will always seek to tempt, to convince, and to deceive people into not doing what God said they must in order to go to heaven. Moving on. Jesus began using this little word must, or the scriptures, Jesus too, began using this little word must quite early on in life. He used it in Luke chapter 2 in verse 49. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Very early on, Jesus understood and began using this word must. Shortly after that, uh, or shortly after thereafter, he began his public ministry according to Luke 4 and verse 43, and he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Jesus said, I have to do this. There's no option. There's no going back. This is the reason I was sent. This is the whole reason I'm here. Everything falls apart if I don't do this. I've got to do this. I must preach the gospel to those cities. From there on, Jesus himself used the word to emphasize just how crucial, just how critical, just how essential, just how absolutely necessary and required it was that the scriptures about him be fulfilled. For example, if you'll turn to me in your Bibles, to Mark, uh, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If we begin here in verse 51, it says this. This is, of course, Jesus being arrested. It says in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, now Matthew 26, 52, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus said, look, put the sword back. This has to happen this way. This is a must. We're not going to fight our way out of it. We wouldn't fight our way out of it even if we could. Hey, I could fight my way out of it. I could call 12 legions of angels and this would be over like that. But he said that, but then... How would the scriptures that say it must happen this way, but the scriptures must be fulfilled at all costs, despite the pain, despite whatever it costs, it must be this way. So put your sword back. 
It's got to be done this way. There's no avoiding it, evading it, escaping it, or getting around it. It is a must. It has to be done. This is a requirement because there will be no going to heaven for anybody if I don't do it this way. It's a must. Look at what Jesus is similarly recorded as having said again that same night by Mark in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 49. And we'll start at 48. Mark 14, we'll start at 48 and then go to 49. Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus is explaining to them. He said, look, I was with you teaching, but you didn't take me then. You know why you didn't take me? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's why you're here. That's why you're going to take me this night. They must be. There's no option. There's no avoiding it, evading it, escaping it, or getting around it. It's a must. It has to be done this way. It's a requirement of Scripture. Because if we don't do what Scripture says, we're not going to heaven. So it must be this way. And finally, as far as Jesus is concerned, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, if you'd turn there, Jesus uses the word again. There's no option. Absolutely no option when the Bible says it must be this way. That's what the word must means. In Luke 24, beginning at verse 44, the resurrected Christ makes sure that one of the first things he tells his disciples when he gets back, isn't it interesting? In Luke 2 and verse 49, as he starts out as a boy, he uses the word must. He uses the word must through his ministry, and then immediately after he's resurrected, one of the first things he tells his disciples is about the word must. This is throughout Jesus' entire earthly time. He says this, Luke 24 and verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary. That's just a restatement of the word must. It must be this way. It was necessary. It had to be this way. There's no second plan. There's no other option. If we're going forward, this had to happen this way. That's why I had to go through all this. That's his message here in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. He said in verse 46, it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. Scriptures had to be, it was a must. Why is it that something so simple and so straightforward simply must be preached in a lesson like this one tonight? Why? You think I'd find something else to preach about besides the word must, wouldn't you? I mean, we all understand the word must, right? I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why this is so important. Because this little word must truly does draw one of the strongest and most straightforward dividing lines between those who are going to heaven and those who are not going to heaven, those who are going to hell. 
which many untold millions will be on the wrong side of come Judgment Day, if today's denominational religious world is any indication. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to John chapter 3. We have established what the word means. We have established how Jesus used it. We have established how strong a word it is. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Watch how the word must is a dividing line between heaven and hell, just like faith and repentance and baptism and all of those things. The word must, when it's tied to the doctrine of Christ, is also that dividing line. Chapter 3 and verse 1 of John. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now John 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty straightforward. If you aren't born again, you can't enter the kingdom. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is thinking purely in physical terms. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Let me show you how this word's the dividing line. Nicodemus was thinking in earthly terms. He was thinking physical birth, born of the womb water, as it were, and then being born later of the Spirit. Jesus has to correct him. Jesus said in verse 3, you must be born again. What is this being born again that Jesus is talking about? This being born again that Jesus is talking about in verse 3 is explained further in verse 5 when he says, born of the water and the Spirit. Jesus is not talking about being born of the womb water the first time and then being born of the Spirit the second time, which some of our denominational friends and neighbors teach. Jesus is talking about being born again, verse 3. That being born again the second time involves both water and spirit, verse 5. See that? He's talking about the same act. Born again, verse 3, born again of the water and the spirit. And he said, you must do this. Because if you don't, you can't enter the kingdom. Why do you marvel that I say you must be born again? You must be born again of that water and the spirit, he's explained it. Do you see how the word must is a dividing line? Can you enter the kingdom if you're not born again of the water and the spirit? No. no, you must be. And so we must point this out to people that if they are not born again of the water and the spirit, the only act in the entire Bible where the water and the spirit act together is baptism when we are baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's beginning to to put forward more and more clues about the kingdom and the church and how this is all going to work. Now, this being born again of the water and the spirit that Jesus said you must do, this is not optional. This is not arguable. This is not debatable. This is not a suggestion. This is not some discretionary take it or leave it alternative. When Jesus says you must be born again, and you must be born again of the water and the spirit, the way he says in verse 5, the second time involving them both. 
That is an absolutely essential, necessary, undeniable requirement and prerequisite which all of those who truly trust God and want to go to heaven must meet. Do you see how the word must is the dividing line? It's serious. Even though Satan today continues to do his absolute best and his most devious, maybe you've studied with some people, and Satan will do his absolute best and most devious to tempt people, to convince people, to deceive people into not doing exactly what Jesus said you must do. There's no option. There's no other way. There's no alternative. But Satan is still trying to do the same thing. Deceive as many people as he can because he knows. Does Satan know scripture? Does Satan understand that you must be born again to the water and the spirit in order to go to heaven? Satan get that? Yeah, I believe you. I can't point you to a verse that says that Satan understands that. You, but based on what we know, Satan knows scripture and he understands. Why do you think he fights so hard for people to not do what Jesus said must be done? That's why I took the time to build that foundation on the word must. We, we see this again in, in John 4, in verses 23 and 24. Very familiar verses, if you'll turn there. The woman at the well. Look what Jesus says. He said the hour, verse 23, is coming and now is when the true worshipers, Jesus differentiates between true worshipers and false worshipers. He differentiates between those whose worship is acceptable and those whose worship is not. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must do it in worship and truth. There's no avoiding it, there's no evading it, there's no getting around it. The true worshipers of God must worship him in spirit and truth. Must. There's no alternative. What does it mean to worship him in spirit and truth? To worship God with the proper spirit means to allow him to be God. To be willing to do whatever he says because he's God and we're not. Therefore, if I want to worship the way I want to worship because I think it's better, I'm not worshiping him in spirit. Worshiping God in spirit is bowing myself down humbly before God and worshiping the way God wants because he's God. It's letting God be God. It's having a humble spirit before God and doing it God's way because he's God. That's what it means to worship in spirit. If I say, well, the Bible says you've got to do this, but I don't want to do that. I want to worship this way. I'm not worshiping in spirit. If God said sing and I want to play and hum and whistle and dance and do a magic show for a worship service, I'm not worshiping in spirit because worshiping in spirit means to humbly, reverentially allow Almighty God to dictate what he wants. That's what it means to worship in spirit. And worship in truth is closely connected. Worship in truth means I'm truly going to have that attitude. It's not going to be painted on. It's not going to be fake. It's not going to be false. I am truly going to humble myself before God. And I'm going to worship him truly with my attitude, but also in the truth of his word. They fit together, spirit and truth. If I'm not doing that, I might as well stay home and watch a ball game. I might as well stay home and watch grass grow. Why? Because Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must. There's no avoiding it, evading it, getting around it. There's no loopholes. That's the way it's got to be. It's a must. You see why it's the dividing line? It's not arguable. It's not debatable. 
It's a requirement of God, and without it, we ain't getting any further. Simple as that. And you know, as we move on and we look at the apostles, the apostles taught the same thing. The apostles used the word the same way. Turn to me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, am I upset? No, I'm not upset. Am I ferociously preaching this because I'm holier than thou and against all the not No, I'll tell you what I am. I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken because there's so many good people that are being misled about what God says that believe they're going to heaven when the, script, when the scripture says they ain't. And that breaks my heart. Am I passionate about this topic? You better believe it. You know why I'm passionate about it? Because good people are going to go to hell. And Jesus doesn't want that. I don't want it either. Neither do you. So yeah, I'm not angry, I'm heartbroken. We gotta understand when we teach people, we've gotta, we gotta teach them what must means. That's why I spent so much time at the beginning with such a simple word, because it carries through all the way through the Bible. Acts chapter four, verses 11 and 12 say this. Peter is saying to a hostile audience, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If we are going to be saved, we must be saved by the name and the power and the authority of Christ. There's no other way. There's no alternative. There's no avoiding it. There's no evading it. That's why I'm not and I'm not picking on anybody, I'm just being honest. I'm not a Baptist, I'm not a Catholic, I'm not a Methodist, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Lutheran, because those names ain't Christ. I am a Christ-ian. Because there is no salvation in any other name, if we're gonna be saved, it must be by the name of Jesus Christ. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no alternative, there's nobody to put above him, there's nobody else's name I wanna take. When Karen married me, she took my last name. She took my last name as my wife. She didn't take somebody else's last name. She took my last name as a sign of love. And when we become Christians, we take the name Christ out of a love and adoration for Christ because he becomes our Lord and our master. I'm not any of those other things. I don't want to be anything. What else would you want to be besides somebody that carries the name of Christ if there's no salvation anywhere else except in the name of Christ? What else would you want to be? Me either. I'm gonna preach before we get done. Maybe nowhere else in the entire scriptures is this made any clearer and in Acts chapter 9 and 10, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And yes, tonight is a class that I hope that we share with those that we're trying to teach the way to be saved because we want them in heaven who might not understand it. I want us to see this word must here in a few other passages. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, 
Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any there who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Notice the word do. Saul knew there was something he had to do. Saul knew there was something he had to do. Ingrain that on your hard drive. Nice little easy poem to remember. Saul knew there was something he had to do. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must, there's our word, do. Until he was told what he must do, nothing was going to change. Once he was told what he must do, if he did not do it, nothing was going to change. We know the story. He goes in, he's without food and water for three days, Acts chapter 9 and verse 9. We know that Ananias is sent to him and Ananias is told he's praying. I don't know how much of that three days that he spent praying, but I can imagine, I would think it was quite a bit. I wouldn't think it was the three-second prayer. So he's without food and water, he's praying, but nobody's come and told him what he must do. Jesus said, in the city, you'll be told what you must do. But until he was told, nothing was going to change. What was he told he must do? When Ananias comes to him, as Paul is later relating the story in Acts 22, he tells us exactly specifically what he was told he must do. Acts 22:16. and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Until he was told that, nothing changed. Once he was told that, if he didn't do it, nothing was going to change. This was a must. There was no evading it, no avoiding it, no getting around it, no loopholes, no compromise, no watering it down. That had to be done. That's what he was told he must do. Same as the crowds on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 had to do. That's what the word must means. There's no other way. There is no other way on God's green earth or in this entire universe than that way because that's what he was told he must do. There's, there's no getting around it. Just like that day with the computer, until you do what is required, you ain't going no further. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 10. And these are conversions that we talk about all the time, but maybe we need to learn to talk about them in another way to people. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He, I hope you got this highlighted in your Bible, this next sentence. Part of it's highlighted in mine. He will tell you what you must do. 
Simon will tell you what you must do. Don't you love these little poems, right? So Peter goes. He's talking to Cornelius and his household. And while Peter is still talking, the Bible says the, the, the Holy Spirit came upon them and, and they were able to do miraculous things. And a lot of people will say, well, see right there, they were saved. No, they weren't saved. You know why? Because at this point, Peter hadn't told them what they must do in order to make that happen. He's told them about Jesus, but he hasn't told them what they must do. And it says very clearly right here, the angel said that he will tell you what you must do. And Peter ain't told them yet. Until Peter tells them what they must do, and until they do it, they ain't saved. That's the way God set it up. We know what happened. We know in verses 46 and 48 that Peter wound up commanding water. Commanding. Now he's telling them what to do. <laughs> Who can deny water? That these be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit the same way we have. Peter commands it. Peter tells them then exactly what they must do. One other final example. Because God is so consistent. Because God knows the 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 walls and the barriers that Satan is going to put up, that Satan is going to put up to try to get people not to do what God said they must. God reiterates this again in the story of the jailer and his conversion in Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. 1625, we know the story. At midnight, Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening. Great earthquake. Foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. Everybody's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul said, don't, don't do any harm. We're all here. Then he called for a light. He ran in and fell down trembling for Paul and Silas. Verse 30. And he brought them out and said, don't miss this. Sirs, what must... I, me, I, do in order to be saved. What must, not what can I, what should I, what do you, what must I do? Isn't it interesting that even a pagan, Philistine, soldier, jailkeeper, even he knew he had to do something. That's amazing to me, especially where so many people today say, well, I ain't going to do anything, just believe. He knew he had to do something. He knew he must. That, that's the word. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he was told that what he had to do was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he and his household, in order to be saved, but he didn't know anything about Jesus. What you got to do, Peter says, I'm sorry, what, what you got to do Paul and Silas tell him, you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus. And I can almost see the jailer going, give me something, tell me about him, do something. Because he knew he had to do something in order to be saved. So Paul and Silas in verse 32 went on to speak the word of the Lord to him in his household. If you notice, just like just like all the other cases, he had to be told what he had to do. He had to be explained the story of Jesus, telling him what he must do. And you know what? Just as 
The Apostle Peter had told Cornelius and his household, just as Ananias had told Saul of Tarsus, just as the Apostle Peter had told the crowds on the day of Pentecost, so that they would know what they had to do concerning Jesus in order to be saved. Apparently, Paul and Silas told him what he needed to do. It, verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Apparently, when the jailer heard what he must do, what must I do to be saved, he had enough faith in God to do it. People are converted to Christ when they are told what they must do to receive God's grace. It's all about God's grace, but we have to accept that gift. And, and we learn how to accept that gift when people tell us in lessons like tonight, they tell us what we must do, must do. Because when a truly penitent and humble-hearted seeker, one who really just wants to be saved and forgiven by God, comes in contact with those words and they are told what God said they must do in order to be saved, they don't seek to avoid it. They don't seek to evade it. They don't seek to escape it. They don't seek to deny it. Because there is only obeying and doing it. They understand the word must. Do we understand the word must? Do the people we talk to understand the word must and what it means? It is a requirement, a commandment, and there is simply no going to heaven without it. Until you fill in the required fields, you do not progress. Until you do what God said you must do in order to be saved, you don't progress any further. And while Satan will do everything in his diabolical power to try to deceive people into not doing what God said you must, you have no option. Then it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to those who truly want to be saved because they're not going to listen to Satan any longer. They're going to see what the scripture says and they're going to do what God said they must do. Because being saved and going to heaven is the only thing that matters. Being saved and going to heaven is the, is the only accomplishment on this earth that's really going to matter in the end. There's a lot of other times that the word must is used in the New Testament about other things that are not a, not a suggestion. They're, they're not an option. They're not debatable. But you know what? Till we understand what the word must means in connection with salvation, all the rest of it's not going to matter. Salvation comes first and then we learn. So maybe I'll save those others for some future lesson. Tonight, do you understand that God says you must be born again of the water and the spirit? You must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Like all of those we talked about in the New Testament tonight, it, there's no option, there's no alternative, that's God's plan. There is no plan B, there is no plan C, there is no backup, that's it, that's it. If you understand that and you're here tonight, we would love to baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've already done that, one of the reasons I preached such a first principles basic sermon to a Sunday night assembly is because I want you to go out and tell people what you've heard tonight. 
I want you to explain to them what God said. Explain the everyday usage of the word must and take them to these passages and show them what God said you must do. That's why I did it. Maybe you need courage and strength to carry this message. We'd love to pray for you. If you have a need tonight to either be baptized into Christ or for strength to carry the message out tomorrow morning, wherever it is you go tomorrow morning, we'd love to help you right now as we stand and sing.